Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. I sit at my writing desk where each night I update my journal. This window looks out over the back of Effie's house. I can see her bedroom lit up all warm and peachy. The curtains at the side aren't drawn yet and I realise that her net curtains are giving a kind of puppet show. Oh my goodness, yes. There are two silhouettes standing in her bedroom. I'm frozen here like an awful peeping Tom. Yet I can't drag my eyes away from this horrible scene. As she crosses to him, Effie in a slinky negligee, Keith in his pork pie hat and a vest, and his prehensile trunk reaching out to Effie. Days pass by and I can't seem to shake those awful images. My imagination keeps embroidering them. Effie in all sorts of ghastly congress with her gentleman friend. She never replies to my phone messages. She never comes round. And when I bang on her door, she never answers. Her emporium remains closed. I decide that Keith must have fed her disinformation about me and is busy turning friend against friend. What can I do? I know that he's dangerous. She might even be dead already. I realise this with a shock. Maybe that's why I've seen neither hide nor hair. But then each night I peep out and see their silhouettes standing at that bedroom window. The scene exerts a hideous fascination over me. Effie never struck me as one who'd have her head turned so easily by a bloke. Meanwhile, I am continuing with my strange tussle with my own memories. Perhaps because I now feel so settled here in my new life, the old recollections come trickling back. I am flabbergasted by the lifetimes I have led, and the extent of them, they come back in dribs and drabs and dreams. What I am seeing most in these memories is a face, 
a kindly face full of understanding, a strong and complicated face staring back at me down the years. It's a beloved face and one I knew well once upon a time. His misshapen nose, his bulbous brow and sunken eyes. The lopsidedness of that face as a whole looks as if it had been thrown together by an inept sculptor out of clods of clay. It's a face that is very dear to me and not at all frightening. It is the face of the actual Joseph Merrick, not John as they often got it wrong, Joseph, the real elephant man. He's sitting up in his bed behind the thick red drapes, hidden away in his carriage. He's chatting away with me, easily, freely, or at least as easily as his impediments and guitar will allow. I used to nip into his caravan to see him, didn't I? I'd sit on a wickerwork chair beside his bunk and we'd talk up a storm. We'd talk for hours. It was that tour we did all round the country, a whole summer in caravans, in what was essentially a freak show. Oh, goodness, it's all coming back. That's how we two knew each other all that time ago. They put us on display for the gawking, peanut-crunching crowds. I'd listen to them gasp and cry out in horror at Joe when he shuffled out to stand before them. He met their appalled stares bravely, but I could see it was killing him inside. These days and nights in this horrid circus. Joe was the star of our show, along with the much less spectacular bearded lady. Siamese twins, dancing midgets and alligator men. At the start, I was just an usherette, flogging my tubs of melting ices and tarry cigarettes under the flaring gas lamps. Then sometimes I would be shoved out before the crowd when our owner, Mr. Diodati, was feeling particularly cruel. I would be the half-dead woman. It's amazing that she's still alive. All my scars and monstrous deformities were put on show all for the price of a tuppenny entrance ticket. I was a fool to fall into the hands of Mr. Diodati. At that time in my life, I was at such a low ebb. I thought all I could do with my life was parade my ugliness. I had no other gifts or skills, I thought. Only my hideousness, which human beings would shriek at. Laughter, fear, it was all the same to me. Their reactions meant that Mr. Diodati graciously allowed me to stay in his circus of freaks. But it was Joseph who befriended me. He saw the me in me. He gave me back my self-esteem. I watched him and saw his indelible grace and his massive dignity. His great good nature and humour. Nothing could dent it. Even when they stripped him and jeered and called out to him, nothing could truly touch him inside. And he would talk to me long hours in his caravan when we weren't required by our taskmaster or the crowds. Joe would tell me about his life and his past, 
and then he'd coax my stories out of me. Hmm, I was much younger then. Why, even less than a century old. My memory was much less full and patchy. Gradually, I told him my various tales, all of them hair-raising, and he accepted everything without question. He never expressed shock or disbelief, even when I told him I had been a grave robber, a vagabond, a woman of ill repute, a warrior, a witch, a handmaiden to a queen, a sorcerer's assistant, and a lady pirate. <laughs> All these things I'd been before barely came as a surprise to Joe. I told him how at last, in 1879, I had fallen into the wicked hands of Mr. Diodati, at a time in my life when I'd run out of resources, energy and ideas. I'd run out of ways to save myself by reinventing my life. I had no gumption to keep me going. At that very moment, Mr. Diodati presented himself and I found myself joining the freak show as usherette and occasional exhibit. Here's what I did to persuade the crowds to take notice of me. I showed them how I could remove my feet, my legs, my hands and my arms. I made myself into the discombobulated woman. Crowds flocked, words spread. Folk couldn't quite believe what they were seeing. This woman coming apart at the seams, turning into smaller and smaller fragments. This woman was still alive. Joseph thought that the act I developed was astonishing. He was amazed at my growing confidence and my nascent showbiz patter. But he counseled against showing off too much. He thought I was giving too much of myself away. Then I found I was getting addicted to all the attention. I did a show in which I came completely to pieces. I was the atomized lady. And at the end, I was nothing but a talking head on a plinth. Not only women passed out at this unusual and unique sight. I grinned ghoulishly, and down came the curtain. Great physicians of the day and other scientists gathered to see me. Mr. Diodati wouldn't let them get too close and discover my secrets. It's all trickery done with mirrors and smoke and black magic, they claimed. The folk from the freak show knew better. They knew that every bit of me was for real. At night, Joseph and my new young assistant, a country boy called Basil, would spend many hours stitching my limbs and constituent parts back together again with the strongest catgut they could procure. They knew they'd have to do the same thing again the next time I performed my increasingly famous act. You'll do yourself a mischief, Brenda. I think you're growing mad for all the applause. Oh, he was right, but I couldn't stop myself. I, who used to skulk among the shadows, now I was happy in the limelight, doing the most extreme striptease of all. How well I remember the night I elected to go one better and give them all a new novelty to thrill to, and how their reactions gratified me. That night, when my limbs lay scattered around the stage at the climax of my performance, when my head was on the plinth, 
I did something no one had ever seen before. I wriggled my nose and made my disembodied parts set to twitching. I made them jerk about. Then I made them jump up in synchronized motion. They danced and capered all around the stage, chasing each other around the plinth on which rested my grinning head. Perhaps it would have been less disturbing if there wasn't so much blood splattered about. The audience were on their feet and screaming. They ran pell-mell out of the shabby venue. <laughs> I laughed like a drain to see them go. Joseph was appalled. You're going too far. You're doing things only Beelzebub can do. They'll accuse you of being in league with Satan. Their admiration will turn to fear and hatred. They will say that you're an abomination. As he said this, he was busy stitching my lower left leg onto my knee, hunching forward, breathing painfully. And I was all vanity and foolishness, I'm afraid to say. All I could hear in his concern was unwanted criticism. I jumped up at once and almost fell over, and then I accused him of jealousy. Oh, what a callow and ungrateful wretch was I. I let him sew my lower leg back on. I seethed impatiently until it was secure, and then I lumbered out of his gypsy caravan without another word. Brenda, come back! I'm only trying to help! The very next day, the owner of us all, Mr. Diodati, announced that I was to replace Joseph at the top of the freak show bill. My fame had eclipsed even the elephant man's. My cankered heart thrilled at this news. Joseph took his demotion with good grace. He was also rather ill, something bronchial. His breath was sounding chokier and more congested. But I pushed those concerns aside and thought only of myself and how my billing would look on the new garish posters that were being printed up. I imagined them posted everywhere when we pitched up for shows in Leeds, York, Lincoln, Derby, Norwich, working our way back down the country and finishing up once again in London. I pictured myself in lights, in Drury Lane, Brenda, the discombobulated lady. And that is who I became. Joseph was gurgling and fighting for his breath. As his lungs filled with fermenting mucus, he was slowly drowning. We were hardly talking, but still, he and my assistant, Basil, wielded their expert extra-strong needles after every show. I might have been in a huff with Joseph, but I still needed him to put me back together again. I found at about this time that Basil was stealing from me, not just coins and notes, but souvenirs. By that I mean bits of me, bits of my body. He was one of the few souls on earth I had entrusted with the knowledge that I had an old wooden trunk lined with silk and stuffed with bolts of soft wool. And this trunk contained spare parts, ears, eyes, fingers and the occasional organ. 
Basil had been quietly appalled the first time he had come upon them, one night when he was searching for a fragment of my exiger's stage outfit. He laid his hands on the flimsy veil I used for my Arabian Nights themed dance, and then he opened my trunk and fainted dead away at the sight of what lay within. Joseph Merrick wasn't perturbed at all by this. He had heard so much about my past that nothing at all could frighten him or put him off me, even my rotten behaviour. I learned a lot about loyalty from my elephant man. How could I ever have forgotten him? Effie is going to marry Keith. That's the next thing I hear. When this tidbit comes my way, my heart sinks with a solid thunking noise like it's come loose in my chest. I imagine dashing round her house and flinging myself on the floor. But you mustn't, Effie. Over my dead body will I let you. But that wouldn't do any good. All this month there have been murders in Whitby. The nightly radio bulletins tell the tales and keep up the grisly tally. And I know some of them are down to the crispy cat. That radioactive feline is still patrolling the town's back alleys. For weeks on end, this phantom with claws has been claiming victim after victim. I realise that Effie and I have let this glowing demon slip out of our minds a little. But in recent days, there have been other deaths as well. Victims have been found in the dingiest of streets, and these women's necks have borne the livid red marks of strangulation. I listen in shock as a DCI Aikman takes to the air on Whitby FM to describe these contusions. I sit there holding my breath, knowing that the great-great-grandson of the London monster has embarked on a killing spree in my newly adopted town. Mercifully, he failed in his attempt upon my life, and it seems that these murders are a fervid outpouring of his true nature. Badness will out, I fear, and Keith has embarked on a reign of terror, and poor old Effie doesn't know what she's got herself into. Now that the news of their impending nuptials is in the public domain, I can hold back no longer. I go to the police. I tell them I think I know who is behind the rash of recent killings. They don't seem altogether convinced by my accusations. I suppose I look and sound rather wild, pointing the finger so determinedly at my ex-best friend's new fiancé, without a shred of hard evidence of his guilt, other than pointing out that he is the possessor of a prehensile trunk. A trunk? Are you quite sure, madam? Then I make myself sound even less plausible by gabbling about Keith's inherited facial deformities and his relation to the London monster of old. And if the police cared to look up that unsolved case from the 1870s, then they would certainly see some correspondences. An elephant man, then, would you call him? <laughs> no, I cry, the true elephant man was a lovely fellow and one I let down rather badly with my vain, silly showbiz ways. 
He died before I could tell him how wonderful he had been to me and before I could say, You were right, Joseph. The crowd and the circus folk did turn against me in the end, driving me out of town, driving me out of Norwich on the last night of our engagement there. Just as you warned me, Joe. They said I was a freak of nature. The two policemen are staring at me now across the interview table and I can see I'm giving them far too much information. They think I'm balmier than a fruitcake, or brack, as they call it in these parts. But when the memories come welling up, I can't hold back. My every waking thought and all my dreams are teeming with elephant men these days, the evil ones and the marvellous ones. Shall we go and question this Keith, then? They treat me with kid gloves, thinking I'm on the verge of a breakdown. I accompany them to the Abbey, where Keith's mobile home is still parked. It's Sunday morning, and Keith and Effie seem very surprised to have a police car pulling up on their doorstep. She's in a pinny in the middle of frying sausage sandwiches on the baby belling. Keith wears a very surly look as he faces the police and myself. We'd like to ask you a few questions concerning your movements on some recent nights. It's rather impressive, I think, that DCI Aikman and his friend both managed to be cool when confronted with the sight of Keith's unmistakable trunk. Have you got a warrant for my arrest? Well, no, we don't, but... Then this is a case of sheer harassment. This is a prejudice against a minority. That's what I am, and I've got rights. Can you hear all this, Effie? Effie comes to the caravan door and glares daggers at me. You've set the coppers onto him. How could you do this, Brenda? It's just because I found myself happiness. Couldn't you just be pleased for me? Why do you have to stir up trouble? I hid back quickly. He's a murderer, Effie. I've seen his sort before, with that trunk of his. Plus, he tried to do me in when he was in my sitting room. He's a wicked, violent man, just as I've been trying to warn you for weeks. Are you making an official complaint against this person? I suppose I am, yes, I say. And the next thing is they're taking him off to the station for questioning. Keith looks like he wants to kill me all over again, as Effie wails about their trip to Scarborough for wedding outfits being ruined. I've got to follow the police so I can give a proper statement, but I linger to tell Effie. It's not about your happiness, it's about the women who've been strangled to death by that trunk of his. Or rubbish, he wouldn't hurt a fly. I'm feeling my own neck self-consciously. I think he could. She turns on me rather nastily. Anyway, lady, you think you're so superior. Keith's been telling me all about you. He says that when he went round yours the other night, it was you who were out of order. He says that you made a number of obscene suggestions to him and tried it on. I can't believe my ears. What? Would I ever fancy a little scrap of a thing like that? Plus, he's deformed. Effie reacts like a cat dunked in a deep fat fryer. For a moment, I think she's going to hit me. He's the best thing to happen to me for years. And you know what? I thought you were too, Brenda. 
I thought it was wonderful because I'd made a new friend, but I can see now it was all a lie. What do you mean? I gasp. Keith says that you put me at unnecessary risk, Brenda. Time and time again you've got me involved in macabre adventures during which I could have been maimed, possessed, disturbed for life or even killed. So could I, I shout back. We both know the risks. You aren't some helpless little puppet. We set about our investigations together, don't we? We can't help getting involved, can we? Effie goes quiet, but I can see from her face that she knows I am right. But Keith says... Keith is a homicidal maniac, I tell her. I just can't let you go marrying him. She staggers back inside the caravan, which is thick with fumes from blackened sausages. She whirls around, eyes blazing. Get out! Get out of my life! You've interfered enough, you abominable woman. You're a monster. That's what my lovely Keith calls you. I can see I'm not going to get any sense out of her, not tonight. Maybe not ever. I back away and hurry across the scrubland, stumbling in the long grass with Effie's awful words ringing in my ears. I dash home, not caring who sees me on the streets looking so distraught. She's right. I can't help thinking that Effie's right. Who do I think I am? I'm the one who's a monster. Then later that evening, I'm killing time watching a silly costume drama I can't even concentrate on. DCI Aikman rings me and tells me that Keith has been set free. They won't be taking my complaint seriously and won't be requiring any more statements from me. I can tell from Aikman's tone that he is convinced by whatever line Keith has spun them and that they suspect I am mad or even jealous. I get ticked off for wasting police time. Oh, Effie, this is terrible. Is he innocent? Did I get it all wrong? I'm so confused. My head's been all over the place. Did he try to kill me? Did I hit him with the kitten first? Was he just defending himself? Passions were running high. All these flashbacks I've been having, they've got me all in a tiz. Oh, I don't know what to do about it. If only I had someone else to talk to. Henry Clevis, say, or Joseph Merrick. But all my old friends and allies are long dead. That's the thing about being as old as the hills. You end up sitting alone in an attic with no one to mull things over with. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're 
you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. I'm surprised to learn that Effie takes up Mrs. Claw's offer to hold the wedding and reception at the Christmas Hotel. What is Effie to her, after all? From the window at the top of my house, I can see Effie and her fancy man darting hither and thither. They're dealing with florists and bakers and dressmakers. I feel rather left out of it all. But there's nothing I can do. I keep picturing horrible scenes. Effie lying in her four-poster bed and that terrible trunk inching its way towards her tensing to throttle her where she lies. And what happens when Keith finds out she's not as rich as he evidently thinks? Surely that's why he's marrying her after all. I can't help thinking the worst of him. But maybe it's just that I'm jealous. Maybe it's my nasty unconscious that's demonising the bloke. The big day comes round at last and I receive a last-minute invitation shoved through my door. It's a fancy, lacy card hastily scribbled on by Effie. She says she'll forgive me for what she calls overprotectiveness. She'd rather I was there to witness her happiness firsthand. I've got mixed feelings, of course. I've got to be there, but I must get my skates on if I'm to make the ceremony in the grand ballroom at eleven. I swear that I don't mean anything by it, but my black velvet is the smartest, most suitable frock I've got. I quickly don it, titivate myself, and fluff up my wig, surveying the results before my cheval mirror. I think, once more, I am the outsider again, just as I always am. Here I am, like the spectre at the feast, encroaching upon the happiness of a friend. We're each given a Kia Royale as we step through the revolving doors, and I recognise a few faces gathering in the foyer. 
I feel like they're looking at me, and they all know the gossip about mine and Effie's ructions. Like a gigantic seal dripping in theatrical jewellery, Mrs. Claus is bundled up in white fur atop her motorised bath chair. She's carrying on like she's the star of the show, which I can't see Effie being very pleased about. Then I clap eyes on the happy couple. They're on a love seat beneath the biggest Christmas tree I've ever seen in my life. They're surrounded by gifts and both look immaculate in matching ivory satin outfits. Jumpsuits, I'd call them. Brenda, says Effie at my approach. I hope there's going to be no bad blood between us. Hmm, I say. Which is really the best I can do. It's the most gracious I can sound. I look at Keith and he sat there flapping those huge ears of his. He's still wearing his daft little hat. I bend closer and whisper, I'm giving you my blessing and the benefit of the doubt. Perhaps it isn't you doing all these murders. Keith smirks at me. That means a lot to me, Brenda. Thank you. Yes, well, you just look after my friend. She deserves the best, you know. And, uh, and... Keith is holding my hand, and I have a very strange sensation creeping over me. Even here, even in the teeming foyer of the Christmas Hotel with all these wedding guests milling about me, I feel like I'm slipping into one of my reveries about my own hidden past. Keith's voice is distorted, echoing. And I am in a different place. In a blizzard, on a mountain pass, I am at the rooftop of the world and sitting on a yak or some such smelly creature. Many, many years ago, the gentleman in furs on the path ahead of me, it's Henry Clevis. I'd know him anywhere. And Professor Tyler sits astride a donkey further down the path, haranguing Sherpas in his most querulous tones. We are in the Himalayas, on the trail of a deadly cult. We have pursued them across continents by train and boat, finding horribly strangled sacrificial victims left in their wake. And their leader was a man such as Keith, with the ears and the trunk. He was the London monster, chief worshipper of a loathsome death cult. We came face to face with him in the Himalayas, in a terrible temple in the most remote place upon the earth, where they practiced certain vile rites beneath the statue of their many-trunked goddess, Fulvia. No, I cry, recalling just how narrowly those adventurous professors and I escaped with our lives. Seeing again as the deadly cultists worshipped like crazy and the London monster led them in their wicked prayers. When he removed his hood, we could see him in all his revolting glory. How his followers howled with joy to see his ears and trunk and little tusks. See? Professor Clevis whispered to me as we peered out of our hiding place. On top of the monster's grotesque skull, there's a very dark tattoo, his mark of belonging, a stylized representation of his own features. 
All of the monks have one, you see? The icon is on the walls of the temple and all the corridors leading us here. Everywhere. Something I never dreamed of seeing outside of the ancient texts. It is the ghastly face of the demon elephant goddess of destruction, Effulvia. Professor Clevis was lecturing me a little too excitedly in our hidden nook, and it was at this point that we were spotted. Quickly, my dear Brenda, we must flee. What's that, my dear? You've got what? A, a bazooka? And a hidden supply of rock buns? Then suddenly, snap, and I'm back at the Christmas hotel on Effie's wedding day. The Himalayan adventure and its bizarre conclusion are relegated all at once to the distant past. I am left very troubled indeed. And what's more, I'm holding up the queue to meet and greet the happy couple. I wander away to snag a second cocktail and then the rest of the event passes in a blur. We get ushered into the ballroom and there's an extravagant fanfare and scads of flowers and rapturous applause. I stand somewhere near the back, finding myself beside Jessie, the gloomy waitress who serves high teas here. On her other side is her nephew, Robert, a handsome boy who doesn't look at all impressed by the proceedings. The two of them make catty remarks throughout the service a little too loudly, and they even manage to make me smile. Such a shame, hisses Jessie out of the corner of her miserable mouth, when a sensible woman lets herself down and falls for the blandishments of a ruthless maniac. I gasp. You know the truth about Keith too, then? Oh, yes, she says. He had a go at me, you know, late one night. He jumped out at me when I was coming along Francis Passage. I only saw him in silhouette before I scarpered, but those ears and that trunk are unmistakable. Her nephew Robert puts in. She only just managed to get away. I beat him with my brolly, Jessie says. I can defend myself. I'm strong as anything from pushing hostess trolleys through carpet with deep pile. Then she starts telling some complicated story about, believe it or not, a hostess trolley she once thought was possessed by its former owner. But I'm not really listening. I'm thinking about the corroborative proof of Keith's perverted activities. Have you told the police? What's the point? moans Jessie. I'd had all sorts jumping out at me in this town. You can't go putting in complaints about them all. Folk have been killed. I whisper, but there comes another fanfare and it seems the ceremony is over. I've missed the bit when I could have shouted out my just cause and impediment and caused pandemonium. Next thing, Effie is gliding back down the aisle, looking extremely pleased with herself. <sighs> the silly mare has gone and done it. One of the worst things that the monster he created ever said to my father was, I will be with you on your wedding night. Well, at first, naturally, Herr Dr. Frankenstein had no idea what the heinous creature might mean. Obviously, it was a threat, and all became clear only when the doctor found his bride dead on the bed, murdered by the monster, who was revenged at last. Now I find that I am making the same promise. Not out of vengeance or anything nasty, but out of friendship and a desire to save Effie from herself. 
In the Christmas Hotel, the celebrations go on all evening. It's a raucous place at the best of times. But tonight, the old age pensioners are kicking up their heels even more wildly, and the whole place is jumping. Effie is proof to them all that love and excitement and romance can come to anyone, no matter how old and bittered and shriveled up they may be. All I can think is that the clock is ticking for Effie in more ways than one. Now that Keith has stuck that ring on her finger, everything she has is now his. Surely he won't tolerate her for long. I feel sure that he's going to do her in on her wedding night. I've already learned from Mrs. Claus that she has donated the use of her finest suite for their honeymoon. While she was bragging about that, I made my decision. I knew just what I was going to do. About 15 minutes before midnight, here I am, creeping out of the shindig. I'm out on the freezing prom, with the music pounding at my back. I nip round the back of the Christmas hotel. There's no one about. There's no one to hear me clanging and banging my way up the network of metal fire escapes. I'm not too fond of heights, but it's too late to think about that. I have to think about getting my mission accomplished. I duck past windows and haul myself up frozen railings. I know that the best suite is the highest one on the tall gabled roof of the hotel, six stories up. From here I can see the sprawling lights of Whitby. The fierce breeze makes my head spin as I stagger about looking for the skylight above the fanciest room in town. There, about ten feet beyond the end of the ladder I'm on. To reach it, I must balance upon the slates of the roof itself. Across the harbour, the tinny chimes of St Mary's come drifting. It's midnight. Mrs Claus said she was going to make everyone applaud the newlyweds and send them up the wooden hill precisely on the cusp of the witchy hour. It's a tradition at the Christmas Hotel, she was saying, for brides to go off in this manner. To be dragged off amid the tumultuous applause of the guests. <laughs> I'd rather die, I think, than face such mortification. Effie has surprised me today with her relish of being centre of attention. So I shin carefully along the guttering, praying it will take my weight. I'm hanging on by my fingernails, it seems. I could expire on the spot and lie here forever without anyone knowing. <gasps> Don't look back, Brenda. Don't look down. Don't look blooming anywhere. Use your strength. Use your amazing powers of endurance. Call upon the freakish abilities with which you are mysteriously endowed. I bully and cajole myself and manage against the odds to drag my sorry carcass to the window that looks down into the bridal suite. The elves have done a magnificent job. Candles are flickering in the purple room and rose petals are scattered on the silky sheets. Champagne stands on ice. All of it would be lovely if I wasn't thinking about Keith having his wicked way and throttling the life out of Effie. The poor old cow would be expecting the time of her life, not its abrupt cessation. This 
is when I hear the growl quite close by. A deep-throated growl out on the rooftop with me. I look around and can't see anything. I decide it must be the weird acoustics up here distorting the sound of the sea. Then I get distracted by sudden activity down below in the room. The newlyweds have arrived, it seems. The door flies open and, heaven help her, Effie is being carried into the suite by Keith. Keith appears to be trumpeting their arrival with his trunk. He dumps Effie on the bed and she lies there resplendent in her ivory satin jumpsuit with her hair done up in that chic little turban. She seems to luxuriate in the rose petals as Keith dashes off to the bathroom. I'm about to draw her attention to me when I hear that growl again. Much closer this time, it's right beside me and unmistakable. It's not an oral hallucination after all. It's the crispy cat and it's caught up with me at last. The phantom Moggy has bided its time. It has followed me all about the town and at last to the top of the Christmas hotel. There's no mistaking this green and orange crackling feline form bearing its yellow fangs at me. I stare into its swirling radioactive eyes and I know I am about to become its next victim. It crouches with its whole body tensing up. I open my mouth to say something pathetic like promising it special cat food, but I know it's about to pounce. Down below, Keith has emerged from the bathroom in a kimono. I'm only dimly aware of what's going on down there while my attention is focused on the crispy cat. Nevertheless, I am aware of Keith flomping onto that heavenly bed beside my friend and whispering sweet nothings while she giggles. And then I see something absolutely awful. For once, Keith isn't wearing his hat. His massive skull is bare as I stare down from above. And there, right on the top of his head, is a very old, dark tattoo. A stylized icon of an elephant's face. The face of Evolvia, the many-trunked destroyer and demon goddess from the Himalayas. I was right, after all. Keith is guilty as sin and up to his neck in that ancient cult. And poor Effie is squashed underneath him. And here on the roof tiles, the crispy cat is making the most horrible noise. He's going to pounce any second. In the suite, Keith is rolling about on top of Effie. She's all abandonment and bliss. She wouldn't be if she knew what I know about him. Then his deadly trunk flexes itself, and as he leans down to kiss her, it wraps itself, at first tenderly, all about her neck. And this is when the crispy cat springs. I jump in alarm, and the full weight of my body drops onto the skylight. I am spread-eagled on the glass as the cat sinks his claws into me. Effie is staring up at the ceiling. 
Her eyes are popping out of her head as she realises Keith isn't caressing her. He's strangling the life out of her. And now she can see me up here, face down on the double glazing with a glowing cat on my head. Effie screams. Keith tries to shush her and choke her quiet. And then the glass breaks beneath me. It smashes and I'm falling through it with a glowing saber-toothed kitty ripping my black velvet finery to ribbons. There's a mad scramble below as Keith lets go of Effie and they both roll off the bed in time. Surely this can't be anything like what she imagined her conjugals would be like. Keith himself is screaming now as I land with an unholy racket and safety glass flying everywhere. The crispy cat is dazed only for a second. Then he's rearing up and preparing to tear my face off. Luckily, I still have enough fight left in me to fend him off with a hefty wallop in the chops. I've got deeper reserves of strength than anyone might think. This is when Keith makes his fatal mistake. He picks up an antique chair and brandishes it at the ghostly puss. The cat howls and swings round on the startled broom. Effie shrieks as she realises exactly what the assailant is. I roll across the furniture like something out of the SAS and try to shelter Effie with my battered and bruised body. What's happening, Brenda? She shrieks down my ear. What on earth have you done? I don't even try to answer this. Besides, it's much too noisy in here. Keith and the crispy cat are slugging it out. The cat's claws flash and Keith bellows in pain. His trunk grabs the cat by the throat and begins its deadly squeezing. But is it even possible to throttle a phantom? Effie calls her husband's name, even though he has just tried to murder her. She still feels concerned for him. I tell her that she oughtn't to look. The battle is too horrible, too fierce and bloody. There is a frantic knocking at the door. People outside have realised that something ghastly must be going on. This is way noisier than any honeymoon this place has ever borne witness to. Suddenly, Keith drops. He's bleeding badly and is cut to pieces. To me, he looks mortally wounded. The crispy cat howls its primitive triumph and bats Keith's trunk about a bit until it's quite sure he's defeated. The cat's badly injured too. His glowing seems dimmer somehow in the candlelight. The candlelight? This licking flame isn't just from nightlights. Everything was knocked over when I fell through the roof. Sheets of flame are springing up all over the honeymoon suite. The silk sheets turn out to be polyester and there's a horrible smell as they melt and burn. Black fumes are starting to engulf the blooming lot of us. Brenda! Effie shrieks. Where are you? I stand up and take stock. The Christmas hotel is on fire and the latter-day London monster, Keith, is dead. I check his pulse. Poor Effie. The door flies open and shocked-looking elves come storming in to rescue us. Effie's passed out, which is probably for the best. 
At the very last, I lock eyes again with the crispy cat. And all I can see there is feral hunger. A horrible sight. Then it fades away, suddenly, as if it had never been. A new urgency overtakes me. Just what we need, another inferno. We have to get out of here at once. By rights, I should be half dead, but I heft up Effie, bony, unconscious, disappointed Effie, and I get us both out of there. The Christmas elves bring hoses and extinguishers and are trying to resuscitate Keith, <laughs> but it's too late. I drag my best friend out of that hellish bridal suite at last. Mrs. Claus and all the guests are waiting outside the Christmas hotel. They've been hurriedly evacuated at the first signs of fire. Now they're in the freezing cold, looking shocked and terrified. An ambulance comes screaming to a halt and Effie is loaded aboard. She's all right. They just want to check her over for smoke inhalation. My heart goes out to her, strapped down to a gurney in her flashy wedding outfit, her turban partially charred and her face white and wild-looking. Keith didn't make it, I tell her as they push her stretcher into the van. Who? she asks in a vague sort of tone. So she's lost her memory. The shock has robbed her of her wits. Well, perhaps that's just as well. The paramedics want me to come to hospital too, but I roughly refuse. No one's getting a look at me. This one looks after herself. I watch the ambulance race off, and then before anyone can ask me anything else at all, I stumble off through the back alleys to my B&B, &B, my blessed sanctuary. And so it turns out that the Christmas Hotel isn't raised to the ground after all. It just gets a nasty hole in the roof and has to have a new bridal suite put in. Mrs Christmas is, of course, insured up to the eyeballs. The only thing I care about is Effie's safety. They let her return home on the following day. I can tell that the memory of recent events has returned to her. And she's in mourning for the mad cultist who briefly married her and tried to finish her off with his trunk. Oh, you were right, Ducky, and I was wrong. Never mind that now. I pass her a small schooner of sherry. I change the old jazz record on my turntable. Nina Simone will buck us up, I reckon. I should have listened to you, Brenda. You're my best friend. I've never had a best friend before. I have, of course. I smile as I sit back in my armchair and bask in the cosy warmth of my attic sitting room. I don't tell Effie about the wonderful best friends that I've had before her. Joe Merrick, Henry Clevis. I don't want to hurt her feelings. I've had a good many friends in the course of my long, long life. And the thing about those friends is that you have to be able to trust them absolutely and depend on what they say. 
Sometimes that can become a matter of life and death. And the other thing about being best of friends during the course of a very long life is that things change. People change. Times change. Things go wrong. Some things go right. Sometimes you can drift apart forever. Sometimes you're left all on your lonesome again. We chink our glasses together in a toast. To old friends and narrow escapes. And also to best friends and further adventures. I pull a rueful face. And maybe a bit of peace and quiet too. <laughs> At least until the next spooky mystery comes along. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.